kids. I hope you have a great time in the back this morning. If you're uh, remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 1. We're going to do a little bit in James 1 and then uh, a little bit in James chapter 2 as well. We'll jump around a little bit. Um, but we're going to start a, a new sermon series uh, in the book of James for the fall. Uh, we're finished with Ezra and Nehemiah um, and uh, going to be starting in this epistle to James. And I think it comes at a, a timely moment in our culture, um, and I hope we'll, we'll see why over the fall. Uh, for the longest time, the, uh, the dominant religion in the United States has been uh, the religion of Christianity. Um, But as of late, there's been um, a rise in what sociologists are calling religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. That's uh, not N-U-N-S-N-O-N-E-S, religious nuns. And these are folks that that don't want to subscribe or commit to any sort of specific religion. Uh, instead, they consider themselves to be spiritual people. And of course, the, the buzzword is that uh, they consider themselves to be spiritual, but not religious. Not necessarily atheistic, but spiritual. And so Christianity is diminishing uh, here in the United States, but it still does uh, remain the largest or most dominant religion uh, here in our country, some uh, sociologists think maybe is around 60% of Americans uh, would say they are Christians today. But it always leaves us wondering, are these folks uh, truly Christian? Or is it just a, a, a cultural thing? Um, is it just a label they might slap on? And so the question is, uh, are these folks all Christians? And maybe the more important question is, how do you know? How do you know? Well, here in the Presbyterian world, uh, whenever we get that question, we want to we check on people's doctrine, right? What, what do you believe? Do you, do you believe in sinful depravity? Do you believe in, in grace alone and faith alone? What do you think about justification by faith? And as long as you pass that doctrinal test, then you're, you're deemed good. And of course, all those things are very important. But I think James has something to say about this question and about this discussion as well. Belief, what we believe, is very important to James, but so is our actions, the things that we do. We should believe the right things about God, but faith that saves is evidenced by action. It is faith that works. And I think that was a really important discussion, as we'll see, in James's day, and it's an important distinction and discussion for us as well in our day today. So I'm going to be reading from James chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 22 to 27, and then I'm going to skip over to James chapter 2, read verses 14 to 26. What you'll discover about James, he's probably not the most organized of authors. He, he jumps around topically, and so that's sort of how we'll tackle this uh, during the fall as well. So starting in James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer... He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, 
the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now skipping over to uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from from works is dead. This is God's word. Father, thanks so much for the, for the gift of song uh, this morning, Lord, and just the ways we've been able to, to sing together as a community of faith. Thanks for the gift of worship that we get to, to gather together as a community of faith and, and collectively lift up your name. It's a little different than the worship we do on Monday through Saturday. Father, we get to join our voices with others who are around us singing your praises, Lord, and And we get to sit under the authority of your word as well. So we pray that as we uh, think of your word over the next few moments, Lord, that that you would speak to us, that you would help us understand the nature of what true faith is really all about, which is James' intention here, Lord. That your spirit would speak to us, convict our hearts, and leave us here grateful for what you've done for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So James writes uh, his letter, and you get the sense that it feels like an urgent sermon uh, by a very impassioned preacher. I always imagine James to be in the pulpit, sort of banging on the wood, sweating all over as he preaches this impassioned sermon in the form of a letter. And there's been a lot of discussion as to, to who this man James was, and Volumes have been written about it, but in the general consensus is that uh, the author of this letter, uh, James, was uh, the brother of Jesus. Um, most believe that Mary and Joseph uh, had other kids, 
and uh, maybe as many as seven other kids, James being one of them. Uh, Of course, we know that that Joseph falls away from the story of Jesus. Most believe that, that he passed away. Um, and uh, because he's not present in the passion narratives at all. And so if, G- if G- Joseph did indeed pass away, leaving Mary with, with seven kids, that would have put them in an incredibly precarious and vulnerable position uh, in the first century, century culture, probably keeping them in poverty. And so as you read the book of James, you'll see that he has a particular concern um, for those in poverty and the importance of reaching out to those who are in poverty. What we also know about James is that he initially rejected Jesus. And I want you to put yourself in James' shoes and consider, wouldn't you as well? Your brother, your brother, starts saying and claiming that he is the Messiah. And so James initially rejected Jesus, but most believe that it was after uh, the death and resurrection that that James realized that what Jesus claimed as the Messiah was true, and he becomes one of the most ardent and and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Most believe he became the the head of the church in Jerusalem, which was uh, perhaps one of the more important churches in the first century world. Uh, Most believe that James was martyred for his faith. He was either stoned to death or he was thrown off a cliff uh, by the temple. So you pick your poison, but either way, uh, he was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. And this letter that we have is actually one of the earliest letters we have written in all of the New Testament. If you plot it against Paul, Paul's likely just been converted uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. He's just starting his ministry. Uh, hadn't written any letters yet when Jen, uh, James penned this letter. And so you can't always think of James and Paul as contemporaries with one another. Um, they, uh, they taught to different people, different audiences, under different circumstances, and during different times. Um, but James wrote this letter, and when he wrote it, he wrote, didn't write it to just one church, but he intended it to be circulated throughout all of these churches Um, in the first century world. And his aim is to promote a faith that works. A faith that works. And that was an urgent thing for him. And as we'll see this morning, to make his point, uh, he shares with us a parable. Uh, Then he shares with us two examples because he wants us to see that if our faith doesn't change our lives, our, our behavior and our actions, then our faith is useless. It is not true. And so to make that point, he starts with a parable, and we come to verse 23, where he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So just just imagine this. That's the point of parables. Imagine a man looking at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Uh, the words here are, that are translated looks at himself um, mean far more than just perceiving an image or a likeness. They convey this idea that we see what our essence as human beings are as we look at God's word, and yet what do we do? The minute we look away, we forget the very thing that we've seen. 
And what inevitably happens is we chase after other definitions of what it means to be a human being. James moves on in in verse 25, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James is telling us that, that we see what human flourishing, the good life, looks like in the scriptures, but what do we do? We turn away. Uh, we, we forget, we, we ignore what is written there, and inevitably we chase after other means of human flourishing or other definitions of what the good life is all about. And our forgetting is evidenced by our lack of doing. That's James's point that he constantly comes back to. He's saying that God's will, which is revealed to us in the scriptures, is the path to a flourishing life. Everything else is lesser. Everything else is a cheaper alternative and a lifeless alternative. But as we uh, hear in this parable, as we, as we peer into the scriptures, which contain the very words of life, and yet what do we do? We immediately forget them. And we actively look for life in lesser things. We, we embrace alternative paths to to human flourishing. We see what our true self is and our true reflection, and then we immediately walk away, forgetting it, walking away from the truth, embracing falsehood, aligning ourselves with the world that is around us, forgetting. uh, And that forgetting is evidenced by our inaction. So what James is saying here is that true faith looks at the word of God and actively seeks to build its life on the truth found therein, to make it the foundation of our lives. And so James uses a parable in chapter 1, then he uses two examples in chapter 2. The first example is Abraham, and if you're going to use an example to a Jewish audience that, that James is writing to, if you're going to use an example, you might as well use Abraham. He's their A1 number one hero for the Jewish people. And uh, James reminds us that Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was saved by his faith. He was a friend of God. But James wants us to see that that friendship translated into action. He uses the example of, of obeying God in terms of sacrificing his son Isaac But it even started way before then when God initially came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to leave everything that is familiar to you, everything that's been comfortable for you, everything you've known your whole life, I want you to just go. God doesn't tell him where. He just says, I want you to go. And what does Abraham do? He did it. He did it. He sprung into action. Why? Because his faith led to his action. So Abraham is held up as an example. And then the second one is Rahab, which is, of course, an example that would have made uh, Jewish audiences a little bit more uncomfortable than their, than their hero, Abraham. Because well, what we know about Rahab is that she was a, a prostitute. You read about her in the Old Testament. She was a a prostitute who uh, housed spies in her home. Now, why did she do it? 
She did it because she trusted in the God of these spies, even if that meant she, were, she would be harboring fugitives. And so imagine her faith, which must have had very little intellect, very little understanding behind it, and yet her faith caused her to risk her life and limb for God. And so think about these extremes. You have the spiritual hero of the Jewish people, and then you have this prostitute, a foreign prostitute. Both are held as examples of what faith is all about, faith that leads to action. And so James, as like a good argument, he uses, he uses a parable. He uses these two examples to bring home his point, which is this. True faith in God works itself out in our behavior, in our actions. Verse uh, 26 of chapter 2, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now I have to tell you, this is where people sometimes get really uncomfortable with the book of James. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the the famous reformer, um, often said that that James was like a straw epistle. Uh, And and he was uncomfortable with it. He he imagined it it contradicting other parts of, uh, or confusing other parts of the scriptures. And and I understand people's reticence because one of the most fundamental doctrines of the faith is that our faith is a gift from God and not some reward for our good works. Uh, you just turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, those famous verses in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says so clearly the truth of the gospel, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul's point is very clear. Our faith, saving faith, is a gift from God by grace, not something we earn through our works or through our efforts. And then you come to the book of James and he says, faith apart from works is dead. All right, so what's going on here? Well, the Ephesians passage, Paul is saying, you are saved by grace alone. We're, we're so corrupt that we can only be saved by God's grace. We have nothing to offer him whatsoever. And then you come to James and you wonder, is James saying that, that we're somehow saved by grace plus works, plus a lot of effort on our own? Is he saying that we're somehow saved by a combination of God's grace and our own effort? Well, in actuality, what I think is happening here is that both James and Paul, again, not necessarily contemporaries, but both James and Paul are getting to the heart of what true faith is really all about. They're just coming at it from very different angles. You see, Paul, when he talked about the gospel, was battling legalism. And legalism was this idea that we can somehow make ourselves right before God through our good efforts. We can somehow earn our way back to God by the things that we do. James was battling something completely different. He was battling uh, what, what one commentator called quietism. 
Not legalism, but quietism. And, and, and quietism is the idea that our faith has absolutely no bearing on our behavior and what we do. This error teaches that, that our faith is, is all about our sort of cognitive understanding of things or embracing the ethereal, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our actions or our behavior. And so James shockingly comes along, and we sometimes miss the weight of what he's saying here. He shockingly comes along and says, guess what? Even demons cognitively believe in God, but behaviorally, they live lives in rebellion to him. Now, why is this so important? Well, go back to what we said before. By and large, we live in a cultural similar to James' cultural moment. We live in a culture where 60 plus percent of people uh, believe in God and, maybe, and would say at least uh, that they would believe in the Christian faith. And when you think about it, we have more access to copies of the Bible than certainly James Day and probably any other moment in human history before. We have podcasts. We have commentaries. We have devotionals. You can go on YouTube. You can go on uh, podcasts or whatever. You can listen to sermons galore. In our cultural moment today, now more than ever, we have so much access to the truth of God. But James is saying it's not enough. True faith is demonstrated in changed behavior, in the actions, in the things that we do. See, what James is concerned about is the demonstration of the truth. You get to Paul, and he's really concerned with the declaration of true faith. When we, when we embrace true faith, we're declared righteous before God, we're, we're justified, we're, we're made right before him, and all of that is done purely by God's grace. And James would say, yes, fully agree. But he would also argue that life that is changed by God's grace will naturally result in changed behavior in changed action and if there is no change then one must question whether there is really true faith see over the years i've had i've i've been privileged to see many people come to faith right and um, people come up and, and sort of ask me about coming to faith. And, and sometimes people that have been in the faith for a long time come, sometimes come up and say, hey, I, I, I worry that I don't truly have it, right? I, we, t- we talk all about this. I wonder whether I, I truly have it or not. Do I really have saving faith? And sometimes those transformations are miraculous. They, they happen overnight, But more often than not, the faith in the gospel changes us gradually over time. God gradually, over time, opens our eyes up to the the ways we've, we've falsely tried to define the good life and the way we've falsely lived our lives. And, and when he opens our eyes to those things, we, we repent and we allow his truth to, to define life for us. And, and so what happens is our desires over time slowly change. Our, our longings over time slowly change. What we value over time slowly change. And that's the whole process of, of sanctification, growing more and more in the image of God. 
But if there is no change whatsoever, then we have to question whether our faith is truly one that saves. Is our faith purely cognitive? We understand a certain amount of facts. Is it just something that's cultural? I'm a Christian because I'm an American. Or has the gospel changed us in such a way that it changes the way we behave, the way we act, the way we treat others? Is our faith truly just about words that we say, or is it about our behavior and our action too? And so where does all this leave us? Well, I think the question that James is going to continue to demand upon us and all of his readers that have read his letter for so many thousands of years is this. How is your faith, how is your passion for Jesus Christ demonstrated in the life that you live? Do people inexplicably walk up to you wondering, yeah, something just a little different about you. Maybe they say there's something off about you. There's something really weird about you. And I want to know what that thing is all about. That is the evidence of faith that is saving. The works are the effect, not the cause, but they certainly are the effect. So how has your genuine faith been worked out in obedient action? How has your genuine faith been worked out in your love for God and your love for others. One of the things I've noticed in in dating relationships nowadays is, um, you know, people have all these anniversaries, the first date they go out on, and the first time they got the guts, the big thing now is the first time they got the guts to say, I love you. And there's a whole Seinfeld episode about this where George declares his love for somebody else and they say, that's nice, right back to him, right? So that's the big thing now. When Wednesday's the first one that says, I, I love you. And, but we all know instinctively that we can say, I love you, till we are blue in the face. But no one will believe us until our actions match our words. And friends, that's what I think is so remarkable about Jesus Christ. He certainly declared his love for his, his disciples and his love for the people around him. But what's always been shocking to me has been the silence of Jesus. He silently was arrested. He silently was betrayed. He silently endured the cross for you and I. Why? Because his actions spoke powerfully of his love. And so when we truly experience his grace, when we truly experience his love, it cannot help but change the way we live, the way we act, our behavior, and the way we love. And so, friends, this morning as we come to this passage, as we're going to continue to come uh, to this passage in passages like this all throughout the fall as we look at this letter of James, I think James wants to drive us towards introspection, to take a few seconds to look deeply at our hearts, to look deeply at our lives, to see Do we just listen to God? Is our faith only cognitive? Is it only subscribing to a couple of doctrinal things? Or is it something that is so much more? Don't let your faith be just about words. We can have all the sermons. We can sit through all the sermons. We can go through all the Sundays. But faith that is true is faith that is in action. 
Be a doer of God's word. Let his truth redefine and rewire your life from the ground up. Let's pray.